Hello, and welcome to Sound Waves of Belonging with myself, Anahit Dashgard. Today, I'm so excited to have a conversation with Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer is a spiritual giant in the leadership and education field and has been an inspiration and guiding light for me throughout my career. He's founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal and author of 10 books that have sold over 2 million copies, including one of my absolute all-time favorites, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation. He holds a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and 13 honorary doctorates and a bunch of other awards. Often called a visionary and one of the most influential leaders of the past decades, Parker joins me from his home in Wisconsin to chat about how to make activism and social change efforts stick. We talk about whether consciousness is housed in the brain or in the field between us, the transformative power of listening, and why learning to sit and work through discomfort is an integral part of any change-making process and what it takes to do that, to stick through the hard part of relationships and why it's fundamentally worthwhile. Please enjoy. First of all, I just want to say, I am so curious to know when this woman who you you had no idea of, Anahid Dashgard, reaches out to you through LinkedIn um, one day and asks, Parker Palmer, will you come and be part of this podcast? What made you respond? I'm really curious. And I have my own interpretation, but I want to ask you that. Well, thank you for the conversation, Anahid. Um, I'm delighted to, that it's uh, that it's underway. I, I think the, the first thing I would say about what led me to respond is the fact that uh, at age 83, I realized that without good conversations with a wide variety of people, my life would not be nearly as rich and I feel as deep as it is, my life and my work. So any opportunity to talk with a person who, at least on the surface, seems well-intentioned and whose experience is is inevitably, one way or another, going to be different from mine and and come at things from a different angle. Um, That's that's, uh, tantalizing to me. And I almost always say yes. I think the second thing was that I checked out your organization online, as we all do these days, mm-hmm. and I was very interested in the work you're doing and uh, the collegial group with which you've surrounded yourself. So those two things were were plenty for me to say, sure, let's 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 talk, and thank you. Well, I really appreciate your answer and your thoughtfulness because. From my perspective, there's a big reckoning happening in the spiritual, mindfulness, psychological communities who have recognized the impact of racism and marginalization, but very much at the edges. And really, it's been a community that has supported and upheld the voices of mostly white people, and I would say mostly white men. And to me, I have never understood how people can talk about bringing about a transform transformation in society or uh, deepening spirituality without having a collection of voices um, reflecting our entire community at the table. Your books have moved me and I consider you an elder. But when you said yes, 
it spoke volumes to me about how authentically you live your values. And I think for somebody of your stature and profile, that is extremely rare. And I think this is the work. If we're talking about healing work and healing society, it is about saying yes to people who have come from very different backgrounds to ourselves and having the courage to step into those conversations. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think all of life is about saying yes to life, right? And uh, so this is this is a piece of a much larger picture. And if other people aren't doing it, that's sad for them. Um, they should get with the program. Well, maybe we can start there, Parker. Uh, you know, the last couple of years have been revolutionary in many ways. Obviously, the pandemic, but the pandemic has been one kind of a time of stripping away shallow veneers and really revealing, among many other things, revealing the deep inequities in our society, especially around racial identity. And I'm curious, how has the conversation about race and racism, and especially you being an American, how have you been part of that? And have you entered it more deeply in the last couple of years because it has come up more urgently in a way since George Floyd's death? Yeah, I think I, I think I have entered it more deeply. I, I'll tell you this, Anahid, that when I left Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley in 1969 with a PhD in sociology in hand, um, I made the decision to walk away from academia and to become a community organizer in Washington, DC, working on issues of racial justice. Uh, I spent five years doing that work from 1969 to 1974, leaving behind the academic career that I thought I was preparing for, for which a PhD was the ticket oh, I didn't to know ride. That. And um, so the, I was 29 or 30 at the time, and I made a vocational decision that really year by year during those five years that I was organizing in DC, pressing back on redlining and blockbusting um, in particular, and trying to uh, hold this particular community as a creative, heterogeneous, diverse, equitable place to live, um, I, was, I was losing my momentum into academia year by year by year, it became less and less likely that I would get that job that most white males uh, with my privileged background and my level of education were seeking at that time. Mm. I, I took a, a, a sabbatical year from community organizing because as you know, it's tough work. Um, and one of the things that I know you've read in at least one of my books is a bit about my adult experiences with clinical depression, uh, one of which I think was to some extent triggered by um, the uh, slings and arrows of, of organizing, uh, which I didn't fully understand at the time. It was the beginning of a growth journey at age 29 or 30. So I took a sabbatical year to live in an intentional Quaker educational living learning community called Pendle Hill, 
near Philadelphia. And I, I know a lot of people aren't familiar with Quakerism, but they're one of the so-called peace churches. Um, they're famous for raising up conscientious objectors in times of war. And they're also famous as a rather small, uh, relatively small group around the globe for being at the forefront of a lot of important social movements, including mm -hmm. those involving equity, racial, gender mm -hmm. equity, all kinds of things. So I embedded myself in this intentional community for what I thought was just a year-long sabbatical, along with my already, wife. Were you already a Quaker? No, I, I knew hardly anything about Quakerism except that surface view I just gave you. Um, my wife and three children were equally buying into all of this. We lived in an intentional community of about 80 people for that first year. Loved it so much that we stayed on for another decade. So I became a member and one of the leaders in uh, a community that was devoted to all the Quaker testimonies around equity and um, other related values um, that Quakers hold dear. And it was a, the real McCoy, it was nitty gritty. For example, there was radical economic equality in that community. They made me Dean of Studies in the adult study program because I had the academic background mm -hmm. for the job, but I made no more money any of the 11 years or 10 years I was there uh, than did the 18 year old who came to cook in the kitchen at this communal living place because he or she didn't know where to go with the rest of their life. So I was, um, <laughs> I, I was uh, looking for the bottom of the heap because there was so much, <laughs> there was so much richness there uh that you know that's that's where the the humus is and that's where the humility is and that's where the growthful stuff is the the nurturing stuff for the seed of life um so the values that you're that you have lived and that you're espousing and i dare say even some of the experiences along the way uh, like the challenges of being on the front lines or some front line of social justice, the psychological and spiritual challenges are ones that I guess I have my own version of, or so it would seem. I think we can very safely um, say that, yes, so it would seem. It's uh, powerful to hear you talking about that history because I didn't know that you got, you had your roots in community activism and racial justice organizing. Uh, I have to ask you because, I mean, it's quite unique to step away from the pathway towards greater status and accomplishment, especially at the age you were, and choose to invest in changing society. Um, what happened? Did you have an experience growing up where you felt the lack of power or status, where you felt hurt by being different or being outcast? I know you speak a little bit in some of your books about childhood, but how, what led to that that choice point? Yeah, I did not have I did not have that kind of marginalized, marginalized or alienated or wounding 
childhood. I, I had a safe and secure childhood. I, I think the one thing I can name in, in childhood was, was a father who in, in many ways was a, was a very simple man. He, he had no more than a high school diploma. He had grown up in a blue collar family in Iowa. My grandfather was a machine tool operator and a labor organizer and a Democrat and you know just one of those all round good guys who could do anything with his hands. I came to respect the work of the hands very deeply. My dad came to Chicago in the middle of the depression, got a job with a company in sales, uh, selling chinaware and silverware to restaurants, hotels, and mm. trains in the, in the old days. Did so well at the job that he rose through the ranks, you know, no further education than a high school diploma. And 50 or 60 years later, he's owner and chairman of the board. But the, the thing that really distinguished my father was that he did it every step of the way with absolute integrity. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he believed in me and he taught me that nothing is more important in life than one's integrity and living by one's deepest sense of identity. Uh, he, I grew up in an affluent suburb because my dad was increasingly successful and we could afford to live there. And it, and it was a suburb in which, you know, everybody's aim was material wealth. But my father, I, I won't tell a lot of dad stories, but one might amuse you. My father was deeply devoted to the notion that he was going to raise his kids, his son, the oldest, and his, the two daughters, younger daughters, with the same blue collar values that he had, as if we had just parachuted into this affluent community by accident, but, <laughs> but, but really didn't belong there. Right. And so when I, when I said, uh, hey, dad, all my, my uh, friends belong, their families belong to the country club, and it looks pretty cool. They have a swimming pool. Can I, uh, can we belong? And he said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not our style. But I'll tell you what, Park, you can get a job caddying up there for your friend's fathers and oh. earn money during the summers, which you're going to have to do starting at age 13. That'll be the end of our family vacations because you're gonna to have to work and save and help put yourself through college. Um, he, he, was, he was a gentle bear around mm -hmm. those issues of that sort. My, I mm -hmm. think what happened to me at Berkeley, I just got soul sick with the academic life. I really got to the point of feeling that academia was not a fit way for a grown up to live. And I um, began the long search for a life and a work that was congruent with my own sense of identity and integrity. Mm. But ironically, I have to say that the empowerment to do that really came from privilege rather than from marginalization or deprivation. Mm. Um, most of the folks I know in this work had their had youthful experiences that were 
quite unlike mine mm. because they were on on the side of deprivation and alienation what you're saying is really important uh there's often an unspoken pressure in racial justice conversations and dialogues around equity that to be part of this work to creating more inclusive equitable communities you have to suffer you know you have to kind of be flagellated emotionally to to experience what it is like to not have power before you can really kind of speak up or take up space and what you're saying is really powerful because actually people can enter the you know the work of creating change from a, a place of privilege um it's just about making choices to give up certain things this is an area where people that have experienced marginalization it took me a long time to get to this place but i realized that i have an advantage over a lot of people that have not experienced being outcast for whatever reason because early on i had to see the trappings the you know the illusion of trappings in society and see them for what they were because they certainly didn't benefit me and they weren't going to benefit me and so i i there's a resilience and there's a there's a um i have internal things i can lean on that i see folks that have never had to think about what it means to be different there's a there's more weakness there um yeah. i like the point you make a lot, Anahid, that coming from two different backgrounds, two people can sort of meet in the middle, still lots of things to be mutually understood and work through, barriers to overcome, things that you know that I don't know because of your background, which is, again, why I like talking with people who have different stories from mine. I need to learn those things. But with a person like me, if you enjoy the fruits of, of the life that you've been given by, by blind luck privilege, um, although it's also systemic privilege, mm -hmm. carefully structured in to yeah. the social system in which we live, mm -hmm. if you enjoy the fruits of that, why, and you have at least a minimal sense of being part of a larger community of people, why wouldn't you want your brothers and sisters to have the same thing? Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you spend at least some of your time pushing back on the systemic resistance to that kind of equity taking shape in our common life? Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we don't talk often enough about how it's easy to talk about values and purpose and how values drive our sense of purpose, but we don't often recognize that there is always a trade-off. If you're going to live the purpose-led life, it means that you can't have everything. And it often means being okay with letting go of some of the trappings of the outside world and, you know, some of the recognition you might otherwise have. I was forced, like, because of my identity, I didn't have a choice. And so that lack of choice, I think, deepened the sense of purpose early on. I think this is why your work is so powerful, because it really makes so transparent 
that seeking purpose is not the easier path. <laughs> it's kind of, that it is the revolutionary path. Um, and it means being okay spiritually with making certain trade-offs. Yeah, um, and I think I think you made a point a few minutes ago, Anahid, that is really, really important, which is that in the social change community, there's kind of this mythology that if it if it doesn't hurt, it's not worth doing. If you're not suffering, you're somehow not doing the real work. Um, and it's easy to fall into that trap. But I, I, we, should, we should lift up more the, the enormous rewards, the personal yeah. rewards, spiritual rewards, psychological rewards, and relational rewards that, that come yes. from, you know, to, to use some old language, living by your own best lights. Mm -hmm. Living by values like love, truth, and justice. I mean, there's a reason why mm -hmm. humankind has, has named those as high values, love, truth, and justice. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason isn't simply like, like, like altruistic and beating ourselves up <laughs> for all that, that we fall short of them. The, the reason is they enormously enrich life. I remember one of the things that really broke through to me when Martin Luther King Jr. was leading the civil rights movement in this country mid 20th century was he said, look folks, the, the liberation of black Americans is, is going to first and foremost liberate the white oppressors before it liberates people like me. He, he was saying, it's it's going to be a load off their minds, you know. It's going to clear their consciences. It's going to make life on the ground more secure for everybody when the oppressed are liberated. And the oppressors who go along with that and who help that along are going to be the first to benefit from it. I, uh, I think what you're saying is really powerful because the way we talk about creating inclusion is like a zero-sum effort. And it's true. I do think in order to create more diversity and inclusion, there are places where white people need to be willing to step down and step away and give up certain things. But we don't talk enough about what gets gained in that process. I agree with you. What you how it benefits how it benefits you, how you become richer because of the relationships and the deeper collective intelligence that is now accessible and become enriched because you're living amongst difference. Um, it's a richer ecology. Yeah, absolutely. One of my one of my first books was a book called The Company of Strangers that came out of my work as a community organizer in Washington, D.C., and it's all about the virtues and values and the payoffs of a diverse community in which everybody has a role, everybody has a part. It's, you know, it's very much like ecological diversity. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, if we leave nature to itself, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it will create an ecosystem with, with hundreds of species of plants and, mm -hmm. and animals Mm -hmm. that turns out to be more resilient, more disease resistant, mm -hmm. more fruitful, more productive of all kinds of things. Diversity in 
the ecosystem mm -hmm. works the way diversity in the human ecosystem could work if, mm -hmm. if if we could create more situations where people could see its fruits and, mm -hmm. and feel its benefits. I've been really thinking about this idea of our like collective intelligence and quantum physicists talk about the morphic field you know the hundredth monkey if enough people within a certain geographical region experience things deeply and frequently over a period of time at a certain point there's a tipping point where it just becomes downloaded knowledge and every you know there's easier access uh siegel daniel siegel and some of the neuroscientists talk about you know, there's the brain and there's our own kind of intellectual processes, but perhaps there's a mind, an interconnected field of intelligence that we tap into. Um, and then this idea of presence amongst, you know, the spiritual practice of mindfulness, like we're, we're tapping into something bigger than ourselves. That's a, that's a pretty revolutionary foreground background shift in how we think about, uh, intelligence and connection between ourselves. If we really see it as, I Anahid, I'm not just working to improve my own personal knowledge and intelligence, but rather I'm working to connect myself to my own soul so that I can absorb more of the interstitial wisdom or the collective intelligence, which means that I want to have as many different folks feeding into that as possible. That's a very, very different model. I am so curious to ask you what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, well, I, I like that line of thinking a lot. I know Dan Siegel, and I know some of the other people who've been working in that in that field. I do, I've do. i been doing a fair amount of work with Sharon Salzberg, the meditation teacher that you yeah. may know, and some other folks who are really tuned into that, like Valerie Carr, yeah. uh, with, in her book, See No Strangers, who's yeah. a good friend. Um, so what, what interests me a lot, just as a starting place, is the work of a of a, of a now deceased um, neurobiologist named Candace Pert. Yes, who, I loved her book. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, then Candace says there's a there's a bodily analogy to what you just said about the collective consciousness. She she in one of her lectures she says the brain may be located in the top inch or two of the skull in the cranium. But the, the mind is located throughout the body. It's, it's everything we draw on, you know, it's, it's sensory, it's relational, it's tactile, it's visual. It's the whole, as we say in the Midwest, the whole kielbasa. It is such an enriching view of how the mind really works. And if you observe your mind at work, you realize, oh, yeah, of course, that's the way it works. Um, and it's not just that cognitive functioning of the computing brain, but it's a lot richer and more complex than that. So you extend that to the fact that we are relational creatures. We wouldn't be here mm -hmm. without this nexus of relationships that, in which we originated and which sustains us. Um, it, it becomes a pretty easy um, step to say, and this is true on the collective level as well. There's experiment after experiment that simply demonstrates that all of us thinking together are smarter than any one of us thinking alone. It's just true. And yet we have an educational system that continues to imagine 
that individuals in intellectual competition with each other are the way to go. Mm -hmm. When in fact, it's individuals in collaboration with each other on every level, including intellect, mm -hmm. which is what we ought to be preparing people mm -hmm. for. So I need to say this, and I think you would agree with me. I think that the caveat to this, to, to fulfilling what you're talking about, which is accessing collaborative intelligence or whatever we, however we call it, depends on people being able to, in some way, have access to doing their own internal emotional work, whether that is through therapy or other means. There's many paths up the mountain. Uh, I don't think there's any way around that. And I, I'm still surprised that we we are in a moment in time where, I mean, we talk, we are talking more openly about trauma and mental health. I still find in the spiritual psychotherapeutic communities, um, there's a lot of people that are not doing their own personal work. And so don't you think that the the ability to create those environments where we can access that deeper level of knowledge people need to come prepared yeah, yeah absolutely they do mm -hmm. and so 25 years ago i established a nonprofit called the center for courage and renewal um our, our mission statement was basically we're we're out to help people reconnect soul and role you, you think up your own your own the term that works for you identity and integrity spirit heart whatever you want to call it if we help people reconnect soul and role that means what what would a teacher be like if a teacher were operating from that more soulful place or that place of identity and integrity what would a doctor be like if we helped the medical profession bring identity and, and integrity more fully into their work with with patients um, you know, what would nonprofit leadership look like? What would parenting look like? What would citizenship look like? And so mm -hmm. we've, we've, uh, we established a, re a retreat model. We call, them, we call them circles of trust where people mm -hmm. have an opportunity to be alone together uh, uh, or to engage in a, in a community of solitudes. These paradoxical phrases, which which indicate that this is not a form of community that invites you, that, at, that demands that you subsume your individual identity. This is a form of community that exists to help you discern, discover, and then support your identity and integrity as, as an individual. So it's very, very different from the communal models that are out there these days. You have diverse identities as well in those circles, Parker? Yeah, we we have worked very hard to do that, and of course that starts with uh, a diverse staff, who, yeah. and yeah. a diverse group of leaders. Uh, and one of the thrilling things about for me about our 25th anniversary online celebration a couple few weeks ago was the um, wonderful rich diversity that showed up in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation and identity. Um, it was not that way at the start. Um, we started in the early 90s and sensibilities around all of this were not as keen at that time, mm -hmm. but it was always our aspiration and 
25 years later, I think we've come a meaningful way into living into our aspiration. There's, there's a lot more work to be done. There always is. Has but, it been uncomfortable, Parker? Because what you're describing, especially 25 years of staying in container across these differences, can you say something about staying committed through the moments of discomfort? Because oh yeah, it's it's. I'm, th- I'm glad you asked that. It's it's really been hard at times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Partly because the you know the conversation about race, just to take that for an example, like every such conversation, has 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 moved through different rhythms and cycles and moments and moods, mm-hmm. and and sometimes that that mood has been very very accusatory, very very blame finding very, very alienating in its own way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's been a situation where a person who maybe has a little better grip on the facts and on the truth, which is two words I still believe in, not everyone does, uh, may, may critique another person for the content of what they said, because it isn't factual or it isn't truthful in their view. Yeah. And depending on the racial mix, that may get dismissed out of, out of hand mm-hmm. because you're just a this or you're just a that, and that's why you're saying that. So there, some of the moments of despair have been around those times when when one felt that ideology was trumping everything yes and we and and that collectively we'd lost our grip on reality um and working through that is 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 really tough uh because you know my sense of what's real and your sense of what's real is that's pretty close to the bone for us Well, what you're describing is actually being willing to look at the cultural norms. So identity is one aspect of the conversation on inclusion, but the bigger thing that's harder to pierce is how is WASP norms, including pedagogical ways of knowing that are tied to WASP norms. And then, of course, intellectual critique or analysis is legitimate and valid, but it is one way of knowing. There are it, yeah. you can really see how there's a and there's a clash that happens. It's like it's identity, but it's also culture and like what ways of knowing are valid and, and it can feel chaotic. It's hard. Absolutely. And that's why our educational system should reflect multiple ways of knowing, um, you know, so that uh, indigenous ways of knowing, feminist ways of knowing, yeah. um, LGBTQ, queer ways of knowing. All of this needs to get folded in, at least at the level of familiarity, so that it's not like exotic language for us to be talking that way and therefore dismissed for that for that reason, like it's not normal. Yeah. Well, what's what's not normal is the way Western white male dominated culture has grabbed onto intellect as as the single, yeah. uh, and that means logic and data as the mm-hmm. as, as they define it as mm-hmm. as the single criterion of what's in and what's out that that's right that just doesn't doesn't work anymore so you know i think also that somewhere deep in this on a heat and um, i'm betting that this is 
true in your, you find this true in your work too and in your own life, is that when, when, when the going gets tough, it, it becomes all the more important that we, have, that we have worked hard on learning to listen to one another, to, to listen to the, the statement behind the statement, the question behind the question, the claim behind the claim, and to stay in that posture of wonder you know, wondering now wh where is this coming from and and why am I reacting to it the way I am as long as possible so that we can keep peeling back the layers of misunderstanding that so often obstruct our desire to communicate. And I think one of the things about a good container, whether it's a retreat circle that's well facilitated, or life in community, a, a close community of 80 people, the way I lived it for 11 years of my life. Um, a good container keeps our feet to the fire on that. And we're, we're compelled to listen in a way that, that we just are not uh, when, we, we, when we live the drive-by life, you know? I drive by and I hurl my thing at you, you drive by and you hurl your thing at me and we never see each other again or we only see each other again when we are both heavily armed and you know ready to go to battle. Mm -hmm. Nobody learns to listen. And uh, one of the things I think we work on very hard in our retreats is listening. I'm glad you called that out. I mean, I'm doing different work and I'm at a different stage in life. And, um, but I would say what we've been creating and cultivating in organizational contexts, as well as in community is bringing that container and the capacity, um, particularly around this fraught, this fraught area of identity and inclusion. I agree with you. There's less and less of that deep space to go to vulnerability which is, I don't think any transformation happens without people willing to be vulnerable, regardless right. of identity. Right, and that, that again depends on that inner life practice that you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. because that's, that's really where you prepare yourself to, well, you, I, I think you start learning why vulnerability is hard and you start developing an instinct for it because mm -hmm. you learn so much when you open your mind and heart. Mm -hmm. Candace Pert said that emotions are the biological substrates of spirit. I uh, always love that quote. And I think about you and I, as we're talking, vulnerability being the gateway perhaps to accessing that collective wisdom that wants to come in that's waiting for us and we only can access it when we vulnerability is the soul gateway. Mm -hmm. Right. My last question to you is, you know, at this point in your life, when you think about belonging, how would you define belonging for yourself? And what do you think we need to um, consider as humans most deeply to get ourselves towards a climate where everybody has access to it? Well, 
I uh, live in a culture of radical individualism, where I think one of our biggest problems isn't isn't simply that a lot of us just keep pursuing a highly individualistic agenda, uh, asking only one question, what's in it for me? Um, I, I think deeper still, our, our culture gets in the way of us recognizing our deep need for belonging, our deep need for a sense of belonging. And, mm -hmm. and in, in our diagnostic tools, we sometimes miss certain critical things. And I think a sense of belonging is one of those. Mm -hmm. um, I think that work is all about building the beloved community that King talked yeah. about, yeah. the inclusive community, the community yeah. which aspires, and it's always an aspiration, um, to love truth and justice for everyone mm -hmm. without, without distinction or differentiation. Um, I think all of that is, is, is part of the mix of what we need to be doing. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I've, I've worked a lot. I, I think I depend a lot on the concept of paradox, that, mm -hmm. that at the deepest reaches of our life, mm -hmm. it's not either this or that, but it's mm -hmm. a, a both and thing. Mm -hmm. And that one of the real limitations of intellectuality Western style is that it, it, it always engages in either this, either or thinking, uh, not both and thinking. It strikes me that one of the biggest paradoxes in life is that whether you look at us biologically or theologically or from any sociologically, from any angle, are we made for community? Yes, absolutely. We wouldn't exist without it. And we we don't thrive without it. Is it also the case, both and, that we're made for solitude? Yes, of course, because each of us must ultimately live with ourselves, um, come to peace within ourselves. And one thing you know for sure as you get older is that the journey toward death is one you can only take by yourself. So you had better be accustomed to that form of solitude. You better have some practice at it before you actually get there. So I think what we're talking about here is belonging in a way that begins with some deep inward discernment about who you are and why you are and what brings meaning and joy to your life and what you will find as you do that discernment is that some of the answers are found uh, in joining with others in common cause, in common struggle, and in common celebration and shared joy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not easily done, but it's doable. Yes, I very much have enjoyed uh the framing in this conversation, it feels like a through line in a way that we've come back to that whatever the solutions are or however we move forward, it has to involve both inner and outer and that, that interplay, the paradox at the heart of, <laughs> at the heart of anything meaningful. And I appreciate you really speaking to that so eloquently. 
Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about these important things. I've really enjoyed it. Take good care. Yes, you too. Thanks so much for joining today. Please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, anahidashgard, A-N-N-A-H-I-D-D-A-S-H-T-G-A-R-D.com, where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well, and look forward to you joining next time.